Um, I don't know if you like watching the David Attenborough nature programmes on television. Um, I quite enjoy them. And they did a series last year, I think it was, or a couple of years back, called Migration, where they looked at these mass movements of animals across the planet. And one of the programmes that they looked at looked at the amazing journey that salmon make. So these fish live out in the ocean and they mature there, they reach their adult life, but then at some point, something inside their nature propels them to go back to find the stream or the river that they were born in to lay their own eggs. They're on a mission to get back to their birthplace. But on the way, they face incredible opposition. And I'm sure you've seen lots of pictures like this and films like this of these salmon swimming against strong currents, leaping up waterfalls that look impossible and dodging grizzly bear claws as they go. It really is quite an epic journey that they're on. This morning we're looking at the story of Nehemiah. And like the salmon migration, this too is a great story of mission and of opposition. If you're familiar with the Old Testament story, then you'll know that God's people, the nation of Judah, had been defeated by the Babylonians and their city, Jerusalem, and the temple had been destroyed and many of the citizens had been carried off into exile in Babylon. But after a number of years, the Persians took over from the Babylonians and Cyrus became the king. And Cyrus issued this edict and he said that all of the peoples who had been exiled could now return home to the places that they came from and rebuild their cities. And that started to happen for the Israelites, for the Jews, with Ezra, when he went back and he reconstructed the temple. But 140 years later, after the exile, God's people in the city of Jerusalem were still vulnerable. And in the king's court in Persia, Nehemiah hears of their troubles. And he is propelled into this important mission to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and to establish the security of the city. That's his mission. (coughs) But there are a lot of people, as we've read, who did not like that. And they were determined at all costs to stop this project. That was his opposition. And as we look at the story of Nehemiah this morning, it's not just an interesting exercise in history. Now, if, it was all, if that's all that it was, then it really wouldn't be very interesting for many of you, and you might as well just go home and have an early lunch. It has to be more than just a point of history for us. As we can relate to it and we can find it immediately relevant in our circumstances because we know that we too have a mission from God. What is our mission? Well, it's to proclaim the good news about Jesus. It's to be his representatives wherever we go. It's to go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's our mission. Nehemiah lived at a very different moment in God's big picture story. But really, he was involved in the same thing. His mission was to re-establish this city and the people of God in Jerusalem so that there would be exactly the right social, political, economic, religious circumstances for the Messiah to be born into 
a few hundred years later. That was Nehemiah's moment in God's big picture story. And we have our moment too in the same Jesus-centered story. And specifically this morning we are going to look at what Nehemiah has to teach us about opposition. It's a key theme in his story. You read about the the main uh, points of that in chapter 4 and in chapter 6 that you read. Because the thing is when we decide to get involved in God's mission to the world. We find that very often we will encounter opposition. So we're looking at Nehemiah 6 under four headings. The first one is the reality of opposition. Look at verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it. So immediately we see here that Nehemiah has got enemies These guys, Sambala and Tobiah and Geshem, have been antagonising him ever since he started out on this project. And together they represent Samaria, which was to the north, Ammon, which was to the east, and then the Arab-controlled territories to the south. So basically we get this picture of Nehemiah being surrounded by opposition. They really don't want to see him succeeding. And that's not an unfamiliar pattern in the Bible story. We've already said that Nehemiah's project here doesn't stand alone, but it's part of that bigger picture story. And it is important for us to realise that over and above the specifics of Nehemiah, it's that redemptive mission of God that attracts opposition. So you go right back to the start in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve had sinned and God reveals the first hint of a promise that he's going to make things right again. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the promise hinted at here is that one day a descendant of Adam and Eve will rise up and crush the serpent's head. In other words, evil will be conquered in the world. And of course we see the fulfilment of that in Jesus. But also embedded in that promise is the reality of opposition. Because the serpent will also bruise the heel of Adam and Eve's children. A few chapters later in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abraham and he says to him, I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's the part we all remember. But the other part of that promise is those who dishonour you, I will curse. So through Abraham, God's intention is to bless the entire world. But again, embedded in that promise is the reality of opposition. Because some people are going to want to dishonour that. Of course, at the very climax of God's mission to save the world, we see Jesus, who faced enormous opposition. First from Herod, who tried to kill him as a child, from the religious authorities who wanted to oppose him at every point, and eventually from the Roman authorities who crucified him. And in the days leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus spoke to his disciples, 
John chapter 15, he said to them, If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And the book of Acts then becomes our running commentary of that reality. So throughout this big picture story of God, so many people respond to the message. So many people are invited into the kingdom. But at the same time, many people oppose. So today when we hear about Christians who are persecuted for their faith, we really shouldn't be surprised, even when we face opposition ourselves. Because they are simply experiencing the opposition that all who want to stand within that mission of God are liable to experience. Here's some examples from the current news section of our release magazine. Our partner in China is reporting that religious freedom in the country is being increasingly suppressed. The government has stepped up their pressure on all churches to become part of the Three Self Patriotic Church, which is basically the government-controlled church. They're even going to the stage of putting CCTV cameras in church buildings to monitor what's happening. In Iran, a mother and her son who had recently become Christians were arrested in February. Their house was raided and they were taken off by the Revolutionary Guard and are being held in some secret prison somewhere. In Nigeria, the government is urging journalists and Christian leaders to stop reporting on the massacres that are happening to Christians in the north of the country. They don't want to lose faith. Now we might, might not experience opposition to that level. But the message is clear. Everyone who wants to be part of this mission of God may well experience opposition. I've got plenty of copies of our magazine through in the hall. Please do pick one up when you're having tea and coffee afterwards to find out more about these kind of things. Before we move on to the next point, it's important to notice here that it's when they see his progress that Nehemiah's enemies really step up their campaign against them. It's when the, the wall is well underway, when it's nearly complete, that they bring out all of these tactics. And this shows us that opposition is not a sign of failure. You know, when we face opposition, we might be tempted to think that it's because we've not got our strategies right, we've not done all our planning properly, or there's some obstacle of sin in our lives, or we've just not got down on our knees and prayed enough. It might be those things, but it may well just simply be an indication that we're on the right track. So let's look at the various tactics that Nehemiah's enemies use against him. If you look at verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hachifirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. So Sanballat and Geshem are trying to draw Nehemiah out here to this place uh, to try and eliminate him. This was a place on the very border of his territory. It was hostile to the Jewish people and it would have been a great place to make Nehemiah simply disappear. You know, like those classic 
gangster films where someone gets invited out to this warehouse on the edge of town in the middle of the night and you know it's just a trap to get rid of them. And in many parts of the world today, Christian leaders are vulnerable to exactly that kind of tactic. The authorities recognise that they are instrumental to the work that's going on and if they could just be eliminated, then it would slow down. In February this year, in Malaysia, Pastor Cole was abducted. Five masked men arrived and blacked out four by fours. They grabbed him, they put him in the car and he hasn't been seen since. His son believes that he may very well have been murdered. And that's against a backdrop in Malaysia where there's increased pressure against the influence of all non-Islamic voices. In Vietnam, Pastor Chin was arrested and sentenced to 11 years in prison for supposedly undermining national unity. In reality, he was simply preaching the gospel and standing up for religious freedom. Well, here in our story, Nehemiah smells the rat in this invitation and he refuses to go to the meeting. They send him another three letters, putting loads of pressure on him, but he decides that this is not the right thing to do. So eventually, Sanballat changes his tactics and they send him this fifth letter, which is a little bit different. We're told in verse 5 that it's an open letter. So in other words, this could be read by anyone. And in this letter, they accuse Nehemiah of rebellion. They, they say that he wants to set up his own little kingdom in Jerusalem and challenge the authority of the Persian king. Of course, Nehemiah had absolutely no intention of doing this. It was the Persian king who was sponsoring his work here and providing the resources for it. It would have been completely counterproductive to start any kind of rebellion against Persia. But nevertheless, Sanballat's accusation here is quite clever because it is believable. Rebellions did happen in the empire from time to time. And you could imagine the outsider looking on at what Nehemiah was doing and saying, what is that guy up to? Rebuilding the defences around his city, arming his people to make sure that they're um, protected. He's up to something here. And what would happen if rumours got back to Cyrus, or, sorry, it wasn't Cyrus at that time, Artaxerxes, what would happen if rumours got back to him? It was a clever tactic. And again, that tactic is used against Christians in many parts of the world today. They're often accused of betraying or being disloyal to their country. So in India and Sri Lanka, there are powerful nationalist movements associated with Hinduism and Buddhism. And if you don't follow that prevailing religion, then you are considered a traitor, disloyal to your country. In 2014, Pastor Tandon was arrested in Bhutan. He spent time in prison for leading uh, discipleship training seminars in various parts of the country. Again, to be Bhutanese is to be Buddhist. And they are very protective of that identity. So by speaking about Jesus, Tandon was viewed as a traitor. But that was simply not the case for him. I had the privilege of meeting him when he uh, visited here last year. And he told us that during his trial he had the chance to stand up in court and say to the judge and to the people gathered to there, I love 
my country. And that will never change. He loved Jesus, but he also loved his people and his country. And you know, in a subtle way, we too can be vulnerable to this kind of accusation of disloyalty. We hear a lot of rhetoric in the media and politics these days about core British values. And one of the key things that's always mentioned is this value of tolerance. We have to be tolerant. And of course we would want to applaud that. But the problem is that tolerance seems to be getting subtly redefined. And now it seems to mean agreement with all other views rather than simply acceptance uh, and respect for those views. Don Carson writes, The new tolerance suggests that accepting another's position means believing that position to be true, or at least as true as your own. So now, when we say together with the Apostle Peter that there's only one name under heaven through which we can be saved, when we sing songs like we sang this morning, Our God Saves in Jesus' Name, then we are seen as being very intolerant, perhaps even disloyal and not true British citizens. The final tactic that we see in this part of the chapter is an attempt to scandalise Nehemiah. If you look at verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Methabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. Again, it's another trap. And what's particularly hurtful about this trap is that it comes from one of Nehemiah's fellow Jews. We learn in verse 12 that Tobiah and Sanballat have hired this Jewish man to come up with a false prophecy. The reality is that sometimes opposition against us can come from within the church. And the purpose of this was to try and get Nehemiah to go into the temple for protection. But that was something that Nehemiah was not allowed to do. He wasn't a priest and he didn't have the right to go into that part of the temple under the law. So if he did, this would seriously discredit him amongst the people. They'd be saying, who does this guy think he is? Just because he's the governor, he can uh, rule roughshod over all our laws and parade straight into the centre of the temple to save himself. They would have stopped respecting Nehemiah and his authority. And most importantly, they would have stopped the work on the wall. Again, an ingenious plan to thwart the mission. In China last year, Pastor Yuez was charged with embezzlement and he was removed from his position as senior pastor in one of the largest churches in China. And many local Christians there have vouched for his integrity. They say that he was targeted because he chose to to speak out against the country's church demolition campaign. And many other pastors have suddenly found themselves in similar positions with similar accusations of scandal against them because they've dared to speak out against the government. Recently in India, a pastor and a Bible college student were attacked by a group of militants. 
The pastor there had been offered money to conduct a wedding ceremony, but he understood that this was a trap, and if he'd gone ahead and done it, he could have been accused of trying to force people into conversion through payment. See, if you can sow a little seed of doubt about a leader's integrity, then you can do a lot of damage. We have to be aware of that in our own context too. So those are the range of tactics that Nehemiah's enemies use against them. And over all of these, we can see this aspect of fear. Verse 9, Nehemiah says, The accusation of rebellion was made to frighten us. In verse 13, the false prophecy was intended to make him afraid. And fear is a really powerful weapon. As we spoke about with the children, many of our brothers and sisters live in this daily reality of discrimination, harassment and the threat of imprisonment. It's scary. And we need to pray for them that God would sustain them in that. Again, as part of our magazine through there, you'll find a prayer diary inside that gives some little prayer points on how to pray intelligently into these kind of situations. So that's the tactics against Nehemiah. But quite amazingly, through all of this, Nehemiah seems to cope really well. So we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at his response to this opposition. And I'm going to fly through these things really quite quickly. But if you want to, please take notes and you can look at them a little bit later and explore them in your own time. The first thing that jumps out about Nehemiah is his great discernment. You know, he always seems to know exactly the right answer to give and exactly the right thing to do. In verse 2, he knows that they want to draw him out to this meeting to get rid of him, so he refuses to go. In verse 8, after they've accused him of rebellion, he just carries on with the work. And in verse 12, when this false prophet's trying to trap him, he understands that God had not sent him. So he sees through all of their scams. In the New Testament, discernment is seen as a special spiritual gift that God gives to his church. And in a context of opposition, it's invaluable. The church really needs leaders with that gift of discernment to know when something is coming from God and to follow through with that and to know when something is part of a tactic of opposition and to steer clear of it. We should pray that our leaders have great discernment. And another thing we see from Nehemiah is his continued focus on the main thing. So in verse 3, when Sanballat and the others are trying to get him to go away to this meeting, he says, I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? So we've said that Nehemiah sensed the danger in this invitation, but he also didn't want to go because it would have been a major distraction from the work. His leadership would have been removed and people would have stopped working. Why should that work be delayed while he goes running around the country having pointless meetings with people who only want to oppose him? Nehemiah is completely focused on that main thing, the mission. And again, there is a lesson in that for us. We need to be focused 
on our main thing. We need to have a a strong, Jesus-centred, biblical vision of what our mission is. And then we need to filter everything through that vision. So when someone comes up with a new idea or we see something that works really well in another context, we don't just dive in without thinking. We stop and we ask Nehemiah's question. Is this going to help build the wall? Is this going to help us in our strong, Jesus-centered, biblical vision of what our mission is all about? Is it going to help us share the gospel? Is it going to help us demonstrate God's love for the marginalized? Is it going to help us make disciples and build the church? If the answers to those questions are yes, then we can feel comfortable to go ahead. If they're not, then we should steer clear and focus on the main thing. As an organisation, Release International's mission is to help Christians in the UK actively engage with their persecuted brothers and sisters by praying with them, standing with them and learning lessons of true Christian discipleship with them. And we do this because the Bible teaches us, as we said to the children, that we're all part of one big family and that when one part of that body suffers, then every part suffers with it. Interestingly, the thing that prompted Nehemiah to first go back to Jerusalem was the reports he heard from uh, his brothers who came to visit him and told him of the trouble of his brothers. So we as Release want to make sure that everything we do is filtered through this vision. And that's the reason why I, I love to have an opportunity like I have this morning and this evening to speak to Christians in this country and to let them know the things that are happening in other parts of the world. To encourage you to become involved in some way. And also to see just how much we can learn from the example of our persecuted brothers and sisters. We are working with partners on the ground in about 30 countries across the world. And we are providing things like trauma counselling for the victims of violence. Support for people who are trapped in poverty. We help children and the families of prisoners who are in prison for their faith. And we also help to get Bibles and Christian resources into some of the hard-to-reach places. And I'll be speaking a lot more about that tonight. Um, But again, I'd encourage you this morning to look at the table through there when you go for tea and coffee. um, Have a chat with me. There are loads of different ways to get involved. We can pray, we can give, we can write, we can volunteer. We also see in these verses Nehemiah's integrity. When it comes to this false prophecy that his life is in danger, we particularly see this. I don't know about you, but if I heard that someone was coming to kill me, even if it was just a rumour, I think the first thing I would do would be to make sure that I got to a place of safety somewhere. But not Nehemiah. Again, as we've seen, he takes the time to think Hiding just wouldn't be the right thing for him to do here. Even if his life genuinely was at risk, would it really be the best option for him to preserve himself at all costs? To sin? To break the law and go into this temple which he wasn't allowed to do? No, Nehemiah has integrity. 
He loves God. He knows his mission. He doesn't want to break the law. He knows that there is a certain amount of a risk that's necessarily entailed in his position. And he accepts that. He's not going to run away from it. I could share countless stories with you of our brothers and sisters who share that same courage and that same integrity to do God's mission where they are. We learn about Pastor Priyantha from Sri Lanka tonight. And finally, in the face of opposition, we see Nehemiah's calm confidence in God. In verse 8, when Sanballat's letter accuses him of rebellion, he really could have been tempted to panic. You know, down tools, stop the work. I've got to go back to Persia and convince the king that I'm not rebelling against him. Panic. But that's not what Nehemiah does. Instead, he just writes this calm, measured letter back to them saying, nothing like this is happening and I'm just going to get on with the work. Quite straightforward and to the point. I like to imagine what San Ballot's reaction would have been when he got this letter. He would have been absolutely fuming. Why are none of my plans working? Why can this guy see straight through everything that I try to do against him? Why does he feel that he can write to me like this? And Nehemiah can be calm and confident because he knows that his mission is really God's mission. And it's more than safe in God's hands. So he says a quick prayer as he's famous for doing. And in verse 9, Now, O God, strengthen my hands. Our persecuted family, I've got a lot to teach us about this sort of calm confidence in God. Earlier this year, this man, Pastor Yuha, Yang Hua, was sentenced to two years in prison on charges of divulging state secrets. And before that, he'd spent a year in prison without even being charged. And during that time, his health has been really poor and he's been prevented from seeing his family. But listen to this extract of a letter that he sent his wife from prison. My dear wife, greetings. Pray and wait for God. My heart is calm and quiet and it has no anxiety. After reading your letter, I know of your concerns. But praise the Lord by singing the song, The Sun Above the Clouds. The Lord has prepared this song for you and me. I sang it many times and I'm so joyful. I'm sharing it with you. Never see the dark clouds covering the sky and always see the sun above the clouds. Never be dejected and despondent. Always look up at our Lord and always keep a spiritual life above the chaos. Rest in God's arms. Some rely on chariots, some on horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. Be upright and take care. Be prepared for the rest of the road. I will go with you. If the Lord doesn't allow it, not a single hair from your head will drop to the floor. Your husband, who is always missing you. Amazing confidence and calmness in God. Very quickly, our final point to consider is progress despite opposition. If you look at verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. 
I love the understated way that that is communicated there. So you have all the bluster of this chapter with all these tactics and plans and schemes against Nehemiah. It's taken up the whole chapter and then you just get this little summary verse which says the wall was finished. And by the way, it was finished in record time. 52 days to build a wall all the way around the city. You see again, this is God's mission. These are God's people. And nothing is going to stand in the way of him fulfilling his promises for them. Not Sanballat and not Tobiah and not Geshe. Not Herod. Not Pilate. Not Caesar. And not communism or nationalism or militant Islam. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. God is securing for himself this people from every tribe and nation and language to live with him for all eternity. And no opposition is strong enough to stand in the way of that plan. Now, the outcome of God's mission is not in question. It's not in jeopardy as if it's kind of hanging in the balance somehow. We've been focused on Easter about the resurrection of Jesus. And that is the thing which guarantees that all of God's plans for the world will happen. The Apostle Paul says, in Jesus, all of God's purposes and promises are yes and amen. And that's why Christians across the world today who are persecuted can have confidence and faith in God. And that's why we too In the context where he has placed it in his mission, we can have confidence as well. Finally, verse 16. When all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. So these enemies fall greatly in their esteem. They've realised that their agenda is not going to win the day and that God's hand has been behind all of this for Nehemiah. Because his success didn't come principally because he had great discernment and integrity. It came because this was God's work, God's mission. And is that not what we too long for in all of the work that we do for the Lord? We don't want the people who oppose us to be destroyed. We don't need to win every single argument. We don't need to be proved to be right. We just want them to recognise that they're not at the centre of everything and that Jesus is. To finish, I want to show you a short video that demonstrates exactly this kind of attitude. This is an Egyptian woman uh, who lost her husband in the recent Palm Sunday bombings in Egypt. And she's been interviewed by a well-known Muslim journalist. It's quite profound. Yeah, 
ويحاولوا يفكروا شويه فكروا يفكروا صدقيني لان هم لو فكروا احنا ما بنعملهمش اي حاجه صدقيني ما بنعملهمش حاجه كلهم فكروا تاني فكروا ان انتوا ده صح ولا غلط وربنا يسامحكم واحنا مسامحينكم بامانه بقولها مسامحكم صدقيني لان انتوا حطيتوا لي ابو ولادي في مكان ما كنتش اتمنى ان عمره كله صدقيني بامانه يعني انا عمري انا بفتخر بيه وبتمنى اكون انا جنبه صدقيني يا بنتي واشكرك يا حبيبتي Father God, we thank you that you have made your people of a different substance. That we are in Christ. And because of that, we might face opposition. But also because of that, we will always be strong enough to stand in the face of that opposition. Because it is you that we stand in. It's your mission, it's your purposes, it's your promises that we stand in. Lord, once again, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters this morning. We pray that you would enable them to stand. We pray that they would draw on the full strength of the resources that they have in you. Be with them, we pray, God. And be with that woman that we've just heard from who will still be grieving the loss of her husband. Give her strength and conviction and hope, calm confidence in you and help her to keep on forgiving those who have carried out this act against her. In Jesus' name.